Hello and welcome to The Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Kleinwood Hambros. In this series, we will be helping listeners make sense of the world of wealth. My name is Fahad Kamal, Chief Investment Officer at Kleinwood Hambros, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we'll be exploring a range of topics, from responsible investing to corporate social responsibility, and the factors really driving this cultural shift in financial markets. Green, socially responsible, woke, what do all of these words mean? What does it mean to be a responsible bank in 2020? More importantly, what are we hoping to achieve and are we making a real difference? Joining me to help answer this question is a real all-star panel. Mohamed Shokir, the Chief Executive Officer of Kleinwood Hambros. Delith Richards, the Head of Client Solutions at Kleinwood Hambros. And Simon Howard, CEO of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association, an organization with which we are proud to be aligned as members. Simon, we'll begin with you. You are the CEO of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association. Is it correct to call it UCSIF? Yes, that's right. We're UCSIF. We're the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association, the membership body for UK financial services firms that want to grow responsible and sustainable finance in the UK. We've over 230 members and it's growing fast. We've been going nearly 30 years and in that time, the thinking sustainable finance has gone mainstream. And the key development has been that people recognise that if firms do bad things, burn too much carbon, mistreat the environment, treat their workers badly, if firms do bad things, their share price will fall. So the link between sustainability and value is real. Boohoo's an example of that. Its share price is still down about 20% since the employment scandal broke. It's proof that people won't buy from bad firms. This stuff, this sustainability stuff matters and UCSIF and its members are helping each other and the clients manage that transition. Fabulous. And Delith, you, of course, have been spearheading the responsible evolution at Climbert Ambrose, working with Simon and with UCSIF. What does that look like? That's right. Becoming a signatory or a member of UCSIF has been one of the many commitments that Climbert Ambrose has made as we look to develop and refine our approach to responsible investing. And we're very, very proud to be part of UCSIF. And actually, look, if we can just take a step back and and ask each of you in turn to help even just describe what it means to have a responsible investing proposition. Delith, could you you help lay the framework for what that means? How do we define responsible investing? It's a good idea. Responsible investing can mean so many different things to different people. For us at Climate Hambrose, um, we view it as a practice incorporating a number of pillars. We view it as incorporating ethical, sustainable, impact and ESG factors. That's a whole smallsborg of, of definitions there. Um, ESG, what do we mean by ESG? It's environmental, social and governance factors. And all of those come together into our investment decisions. We blend the approaches and as I say, these, these, these different ways of investing span a spectrum of responsibility. And they, at one end, they, they, they work on negative screening. That is where we exclude certain specific sectors. And we have and we do exclude some that we consider to be controversial. Uh, companies, for example, that produce large amounts of thermal coal or gambling companies 
or companies involved in adult entertainment or controversial weapons. Those are sectors that we seek to exclude. And at the other end, we invest in impact funds, funds that aim to use the capital that they raise to generate a measurable or beneficial impact for society or for the environment. So we combine both the negative screening as part of our core processes. So our classic strategies or classic portfolios incorporate some of this negative screening of controversial sectors like thermal coal and controversial weapons. And at the other end, we have um, put together a number of responsible strategies that not only work with those negative screenings, but we add additional exclusions as well as the impacted purposeful part of investment to take it even further. I see. And and Simon, would you like to add anything to, to that sort of framework of responsible investing that we're beginning to form? What I would just say is uh, the approach focuses on the long term. Um, so it's not dealing day by day. It's looking for long term influences on companies to avoid risks which will crystallise over time, but crucially to exploit and identify opportunities. And it's the long term and the breadth of vision is what marks out responsible and sustainable investing. Uh, and frankly, as an ex-chief investment officer, it's the only way to do investment. And Delith, does it go further than this really at, at, at the bank level? Does it go further than just negative screens? Uh, absolutely. It's a really important point. Um, we, we start with the negative screening because that allows us to isolate those really key uh, sectors that we wish to avoid. But we, of course, we apply many further screens. Uh, for example, we, we look to favour best-in-class companies to avoid companies that don't measure up to the standards that we're trying to isolate. And we use that by using an ESG rating system that scores companies by a number of different factors, including social and governance factors, for example. Yeah, to really to push you on that and really take it back to its basics. So ESG obviously stands for environmental, social and governance, as you mentioned. Um, and it's very much common parlance now. But really, what does that look like on the ground concretely? And, and what might fall into those three buckets? Sure. Um, well, let's give you some examples. A typical environmental concern is climate change, whereas a social concern could be access to healthcare, and a governance concern could be board diversity, gender and other forms of diversity. So companies using our ESG ratings provider, these companies are scored according to how they meet up to the best standards in each of those buckets. And as you say, that gives us a well-rounded insight into the nature of their businesses. And, and Simon, um, you know, following on from what Gellith just said, clearly those companies that tend to follow better ESG practices, it's not just about being a better or more responsible corporate entity. It really has an impact on the, on the bottom line as well. Yes, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence now that companies, so if we talk about it, you know, individual businesses which follow good ESG practices outperform. Um, there's been a lot of focus recently on diversity, for instance, as Delith has said. But the evidence is, for instance, uh, that companies which have women on the board, good diversity, gender diversity at the board level, you, their share prices do better because at the top level of the company, you're getting more broad insight, more broad uh, understanding of the challenges and opportunities the company faces. 
So uh, ratings providers crank the data and it is very persuasive. I've seen the studies which talk of gender diversity, increasingly of racial diversity, as adding value. You know, this sustainable investment, it is partly about ethics, but, but fundamentally, and the reason it's growing so fast, is it is about adding value. I see. And Dalith, you, you, you actually have some statistics to hand about specifically how that's being manifested in performance. Absolutely, both in our own, own analysis. So we, we've done our own analysis where we've compared um, the MSCI ESG leaders index returns with the broader index returns, um, which shows that there is uh, certainly not a loss that we're dispelling that myth that some people fear used to think that investing in a a sustainable or impactful way could actually give a lower return. And we've been able to see from statistics that actually it does not. But there are many other st- studies that also demonstrate a positive relationship and that all of this evidence is becoming increasingly compelling. Some of these studies go back a few years, in fact. So, for example, in 2016, Deutsche Asset and Wealth Management, together with Hamburg University, reviewed more than 2,000 studies that have been carried out since 1970, uh, examining the relationship between ESG criteria and financial performance. And that study found that in about 63% of cases of those academic studies, there was a positive relationship and only 10% showed a negative relationship. And some other banks, such as Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, they found in an earlier study that incorporating factors have helped investors avoid 90% of bankruptcies in companies that the bank covered. You hear that? 90% of bankruptcies they've avoided by enrolling in, in, in some ESG factors into their screening. So it's a very important criteria and, and an element in responsible investing. And a recent, very, very recent study this year um, conducted by Nuveen um, cited performance as one of the main motivating factors for investors investing responsibly. So not just driven by demand, but actually they, they believe it's improving performance because of the factors, as Simon said, like diversity of boards. No, that's that that's that's uh, you know incredibly compelling data, and it, it's sort of the proof is in the pudding, as they say. So, Simon, can you sort of perhaps help me understand that clearly, with such a compelling argument to be made for ESG, not only from a perhaps an ethical perspective, but clearly from a dollars and cents perspective as well, what is the scale of of this evolution in markets today? Um, how mainstream are we are we in this in this field? Yeah, it's absolutely enormous now. So UXIF is part of the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, and we do a report every two years on the size of markets. The global market for sustainable investment was $30 trillion at the end of 2018. We're now preparing the data for the next edition of that report, looking at the UK data. A quarter of UK assets were managed responsibly at the end of 2018. I, I can't give you the figure now, the current data, um, but it's it's a lot bigger. I can, I can leak that much to you. It's a lot larger. We're going to see a further step change in the proportion of assets managed in the UK managed this way. And the pace is increasing. Um, Morningstar reported that more than a third of inflows into sustainable assets in 2019 came in the final three months of the year. It's still ramping up. 
and the sustainable funds have in general performed very well during the COVID crisis. So that will be attracting attention and money as well. We've been interviewing some fund managers for the report we're doing. Uh, and one of them just said, this is the only game in town. This is the growth area. I see. So clearly from what was once an obscure niche uh, corner of the investing world has now become has now become wider and is creating traction, which is fabulous. So wh- where do we go from here? Well, I think it's onwards and upwards. Um, the large institutions are looking at this. The, the FCA, the financial services regulator, is urging large institutions to look at this and they're changing regulation to force it. Um, financial advisors are looking at it. Uh, Federated Hermes in a report published in May this year, 85% of the financial advisors Hermes spoken to had reported a rise in client requests to put more money into ESG funds. So I, you know, I think it's onwards and upwards. It's spreading across asset classes. It's moving from equities to fixed income to property. Um, I think every part of financial services is now looking at responsible and sustainable investment. That really is uh, incredible that it's that's spreading like wildfire and cre- indeed across asset classes. Um, so clearly, uh, it's hugely popular, increasingly relevant, and doing the right thing and behaving responsibilities at the forefront of uh, of client demand. Really, which brings me really to Mo. You, as CEO of Kleinwood Hambros, how are you thinking about responsible investing? What does it mean for Kleinwood Hambros to be a responsible private bank, as you've clearly uh, stated is one of your one of your burning ambitions? Yeah, I guess being a responsible bank for us means three things. Uh, the first is how to make a difference to our clients' financial well-being. Uh, that's what we've been discussing right now in terms of responsible investing. The second point is how to make a difference to our organization and our staff's well-being. And the third is how to make a difference to the world. And yeah, you heard that correctly, to the world and to the society and its well-being. And that's quite key here is that really our role as an organization is to focus on all of those three things. Every single decision that we take, whether it's for a client or for a member of staff or for the way we position our institution, we have to stay focused on those three key stakeholders, if you like. That is our clients, our staff and society as a whole. And and that is really what being a responsible bank means, is to keep that at the forefront of our mind in terms of the impact we're having on all of these key stakeholders. And that's really quite a, a sea change, isn't it, Mo, from from sort of years and, de- and decades in the past where shareholder value was the key driving force uh, for CEOs and, and really that, that equated to generating as much profit as possible. But but here you are talking about really a fundamental pivot towards becoming a social actor that does good side by side with 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 making a profit as well. And perhaps you know even if they if if there is a trade off, uh, not simply veering towards profit at every opportunity, but seeing the greater and wider impact of your decisions. Yeah, there isn't a trade-off, though. They're not mutually exclusive. I think you you can actually uh, deliver uh, sustainable profits by doing good for all of the stakeholders that we've mentioned. So it's not uh, a dilemma that you face as a business, actually, by being a responsible bank, you're delivering good outcomes for all of those 
whether it's clients, staff, or society, but also able to generate uh, shareholder value. So they're not mutually exclusive from the evidence that's been shared on the call already and everything that we've seen in the studies that we've done. Indeed. So can I ask you to elaborate further regarding, you know, so what does this really mean in terms of corporate social responsibilities? Are we talking about diversity and inclusion or what else really? Look, it's 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 all of those things. I think when you think about the way organizations are run, in essence, it's it's creating a more inclusive environment for for all. And inclusion is partly through diversity uh, in terms of people from different backgrounds and, and different perspectives, but also uh, it's around creating a, a workplace that enables flexibility as well. So that is, again, part of being a responsible bank is to enable the workforce to say, look, different people prefer to work in different ways. Some people prefer to interact face to face. Some people prefer a bit more privacy. Some people want to work from home. Some people want to be more present in the office and creating that flexible uh, environment for our staff, again, ensures their well-being. And that's really our commitment is to deliver on that in order to create the sense of uh, outcome and positive outcome for them. And that's what it means for us to being a responsible bank. Absolutely. Look, it makes perfect sense. But as we consider the question of what does it mean to be a responsible bank in 2020, necessarily that answer will be shaped by, by this very extraordinary year. Um, regarding the impact of coronavirus uh, specifically and, and the impact that's had on global society, really, um, what extent do you think the pandemic has been a wake-up call for banks and for investors as far as responsibility is concerned? Look, I I would put forward this, this notion that essentially COVID-19 hasn't brought to bear new realities, right? And in essence, we knew the impact that certain behaviors had on climate, right? It was well documented, well discussed, and so on. But in essence, through COVID-19, we were able to see the impact of changing some of those behaviors, right? And and essentially, the, the, the use of energy changed, the way that people commuted, the way that people traveled. Again, we were able to now get data on something that's been long held as a, as a, if you like, as a hypothesis that's been challenged. So all COVID-19 has done is shine a bright light on some of these uh, ideas of what it means to be more responsible. And that's, again, you call it a wake-up call. I would call it a call to action rather than a wake-up call. This is really an opportunity for all of us to say, as a result of this, now we have to step up and make a difference to our clients, to our staff, to our societies, because it's our role and our duty to do that. And I think that's, in essence, what COVID-19 has done, is it's brought to light a lot of these dynamics. Indeed, and, and, and one of the, the, the particularly, um, you know, sort of darker corners of, of uh, the world that a bright light has, you know, shown on as a result of COVID has been our interaction with with the environment, you know, specifically, obviously, climate change, if you think about the the blurring of the lines between between concrete and and the natural world and and the ramifications particularly that, that that's had in terms of um, viruses and and, uh, and and such they are serious threats to our way of life and we've clearly got to address them yeah I guess if I'll put a question to you um, do you enjoy going to the dentist 
No, no, I, I, I can't say I do. Uh, it's a bit of a personal question, I know. But let me just give you some, some data here. So there's some surveys have been done that show that people prefer to go to the dentist. 76% of people would prefer to go to the dentist than invest in a company that pollutes the environment. That's, in essence, how people feel about uh, the environment and pollution and investing. And that, this is really what I call talk about the call to action, is that, in essence, this is not just about doing good. This is essentially also responding to what people want, what clients want, what staff want. So this is very much our responsibility is responding to the changing norms and changing demands that our clients have. So um, that's, that's in essence what, what, what is happening here. And, and this rise in whether it's being responsible as a bank or being a responsible investor is driven again by demand from what clients want. Indeed, those 24% of people who, who, who prefer to pollute the environment um, clearly need to change the dentist. Um, <laughs> Simon, would you say this, uh, this rings true with your experience of what you've observed over the past six months or so? Yes, definitely. Um, when I speak to UXIF members, um, yes, climate and environmental concerns are key, but a lot more attention being now placed on social. Social is racing up the agenda on the ESG uh, ladder. Uh, you know, fund managers are talking, uh, you know, they're thinking it through. You know, society seems to be reevaluating some roles, you know, healthcare workers and many of the low paid, the dustbin men, the supermarket workers. How is that change going to be reflected in how people shop and buy services? Um, how should fund managers respond to it? The linkages between societal attitudes and the stock market aren't yet clear. Perhaps pay will rise. Perhaps lowest cost won't be the central criteria for outsourcing. Perhaps the government will lead the way there. What the fund managers among our members say to me, I think this is, is really quite interesting, is that you could tell the quality of the firm's management from how they responded to COVID-19. Some did very badly. Others did very well, saying we won't be laying off staff, we won't be furloughing staff. And many of the sustainable fund managers, you know, they're saying the good. we knew who the good managements were. COVID has just proved it. So social issues growing very much in the last six months, but, but climate too. In the last six months, BP has committed to halving its carbon emissions by 2030, the first of the oil super majors to do anything on that scale. And NatWest, formerly Royal Bank of Scotland, has said they will halve the carbon emissions they fund by 2030. And that's really important. That's a bank which doesn't produce the carbon we burn. It's the bank saying we will use our assets, our capital, to only support firms who recognise they need to adapt. These are really significant changes and they've happened alongside COVID in the first half of 2020. Simon, that's really interesting. And, and if I could um, almost just push you uh, on that regarding clearly responsible investing, ESG criteria and factors and all have become such an increasingly important driver of, of how financial markets are, are investing money, etc. And it's become mainstream, as you've, as you've said. So, Simon, what exactly is greenwashing and how can we tell those companies that are doing it versus those that are actually making a difference? So I think real leaders, both in banking and in fund management and, and businesses like Climewalks, 
will make commitments and will then give enough data for the client or for the investor or for the public to judge them against those commitments. So if we just focus on fund management, fund managers who simply make a few exclusions, you know, who, who won't invest in the most egregious um, thermal coal producers, for instance, that really is light touch. And if on the strength of excluding just coal, they claim to be environmentally friendly, then you should be very sceptical. At the other end, you've got fund managers who say we will reduce the carbon emissions from our portfolio over time. And they will say it's going to be very hard. It's going to need a lot of work with the investee companies and a lot of thought on our part. But we'll report, say, each year on what we're doing. Those are the people who aren't greenwashing. They're making a commitment, recognising the necessary direction of travel and inviting their shareholders and their clients to judge them on their delivery. Those are the people who really do it. In banking, it will be similar. It's the banks who say we're going to set a budget for the emissions we finance. We will withdraw from certain lines of business if they aren't congruent with that objective. It's action, it's reporting, it's transparency is how you tell the good from the greenwashers. I see. Now, I would be remiss to let you all go without asking the question, what's next? In the near term and in the long term, say the next 10 years, what do you expect to see will transform our industry for the better? Simon? Yes, well, from where I sit, uh, we have now won the argument. The science has won through on climate common sense and, and, and morality has is increasingly winning through on society. So, you know, we have a tailwind behind us, there will be changes in regulation. But the new player, the one I expect to exercise great influence over the next 10 years is the public. The public has noticed these concerns, stimulated, I think, by Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough. The public, and particularly the young, and the not so young now, recognise the risks and the opportunities, and they want their finances to reflect it. What the public get, the politicians get, and we're seeing that far more engagement with politicians than ever before, and I expect that to develop over the next 10 years. Behind the politicians come the regulators who are told ultimately what to do by the politicians. So I expect more regulation. I expect the public to start changing their spending patterns. You know, will they buy less meat? It's quite possible. Will they want more renewable power? Will they want electric vehicles? All of this is possible. Will the public want more onshoring? Will the public accept premium pricing for socially validated goods and services? I think all of this is possible. Change is obviously a constant, but I think over the next 10 years, the rate and nature of change in the financial services sector will surprise us all. That's my prediction. Change, lots of it, and surprising change. Indeed, Simon, and especially if, you know, between Greta and, and Sir, uh, Sir David, you've got a wide swathe of society as well. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Delith, can I put the same question to you? What's next in the near term and in the long term? Well, I think one of the very big near term changes that has come about is the um, rollout of regulation. And we're, we're certainly seeing a drive, a European drive, to roll out more regulation around disclosure. 
which will come into play uh, from next year onwards. And that's driven by many of the factors Simon's pulled together. But I think also we have to remember some of the really powerful um, investors, you know, some of the people who control big assets under management. We've got some of the um, big church funds, we have pensions and charities, and they themselves have, have got investors and stakeholders who are requiring that the way that their funds are invested is is better and doing good for the community and society at large. So there's a drive by the investors, but together with the regulatory regime, I think we're going to see absolutely more disclosure, and that's got to be good for everyone. And hopefully some standardisation of all the terminology. There's a whole smallsborg of different and difficult terms for retail and professional investors, and we need to see that those elements of standardisation Mo, uh, can I put the same question to you, sir? Uh, what's next? Yeah, look, what's clear is that uh, expectations and priorities are continuously shifting. And so what we can expect in the next decade is, again, people's definition of what is right and wrong, what is responsible or irresponsible, will inevitably evolve uh, and shift. So that's that's almost a given. Uh, we have some blueprints, roadmaps, a big picture, if you want to call them that, sort of aspirations as as a world, as a society. And some of those are captured in the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, that really look and show all of the work that needs to be done and, and essentially the multi-trillion dollar budget that's required to essentially fulfill some of those ambitions. And really our role, uh, both individually and collectively is to contribute to a better world. And that's really what we see uh, in the coming decade, that as those expectations shift, as those priorities change, is that really that we need to think about how we can act responsibly, but also make a difference to all of the people in the world that, that we that we serve as well as we work with and society at large. Indeed, Mo. And, and if I can press you on, on specifically uh, regarding Climate Ambrose, as CEO, where would you like to see us be 10 years from now? Could you envision Climate Ambrose having nothing but responsible strategies? Well, look, the, the, the word responsible is uh, not necessarily one that will continue to exist as a word. It will just become the norm that people will just act and behave in certain ways. And, and I think for us, clearly, by focusing our mind on what it means to be a responsible bank, it means that we direct our efforts and our energy and our decisions around some of those key parameters. But it, over the next decade, I think more and more companies will just act this way as mainstream rather than trying to disrupt the mainstream with responsible investing or responsible behavior. So this will become much more mainstream. And then really our role uh, as, a, as, a, as a bank is to continue to lead these initiatives uh, by partnering up with UGSIF, with others like UGSIF to say, let's be a voice, let's be an agent of change around these very key principles. Uh, and, and that's really the, the reason that we're pushing on that because it's important to us and our and our clients and staff. Mo Simon Delth, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time, particularly as we discuss this incredibly important evolution that's taking place not just within the investment world, but within society itself. 
Thank you very much for joining us once again today for our latest episode of The Wealth Chat. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambrus Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited Guernsey Branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.